Step right up, it's nailed. A halo by halo journey through the music of Nine Inch Nails. I'm Blake. I'm Jessica. And we are back. And as you might have heard, Oscar's back. Mm-hmm. There Damn he is. <laughs> For that's him saying it's a whole new era. Yep. He just said sorry about the hiatus. Mm-hmm. That there's a lot of prep work to do, as you might imagine. And what's that era that we're in now, Jess? Awitha Titha. Welcome to the Awitha Titha era. <laughs> uh, good grief. There's way, way too many uhs in the phrase Awitha Titha era. I don't think I can keep that up. And this is, what is this? This is just an intro to an era. Yeah. Sorry, not a halo. Not a halo. But an intro to a few halos. Mm-hmm. And this one, just as promised me, won't be as long as the fragile era, which took us, we won't even talk about how long it took. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to talk about. And there's more to this one than I thought there would be. I didn't really know a lot going into this, but... Well, there are five years of Trent Reznor's life in between albums. Mm-hmm. We're about to enter into like his early prolific era. <laughs> True, yeah. When he started making things uh, more than every five years. Mm-hmm. And now he does. They're just all scores. Yeah, now he's got something every... Three months. Speaking of which, is there any nine inch news you want to talk about? So everything is in the news today. So the newest news is about the turt turts. For those not initiated or who didn't listen to my old podcast Shelf Life, a turt turt is short for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Mm-hmm. My favorite childhood product. I like them a lot, too. It's still around, folks, and Reznor and Ross are scoring their second animated family film. (laughs) At least I think it's a family film. Mm. So more stuff for the kids, kids and adults alike, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know much about it other than it looks like Into the Spider-Verse, and the music is really cool. I was listening to it again in the car today, and I think it slaps. That is the original score for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, I think is what it's called. It's it's so many words. I hope that was right. I think that's right. Really out there, noisy, glitchy, fast-paced, uh, video gamey, <laughs> electronic. What do you think of it, Jess? Uh, I like it. Okay. <laughs> She's she can't even hide that she's not that into it. But I no, think it's really I exciting. To it, I listened to it one time. I just haven't had I haven't had time to like sit down with it and really listen to it. I've been we've got a lot going on. Yeah, well, there's so. look a lot going on right now. <laughs> yeah, but it's got it all. Go just go listen to the turtles if you haven't yet. Yeah, and I couldn't listen to it today because I had to watch six hours of Ninety Day Fiance straight. Oh God. Mm-hmm. And did you ever think Trent Reznor was going to be scoring the fucking turtles? Like that's not. Not something I had on my 2023 bingo card, okay? <laughs> or on my entire life's bingo card. Not. But this is like a dream come true. If you could kind combine of. the interests of like eight year old Blake and right. 17 year old Blake, then yeah, it's wow. Real, it's a weird combo yeah. that I don't know that I ever wanted, but now that it's here, I'm cool with it. Um, but I'm guessing his kids uh, pressured him into doing this one. <laughs> The other bit of news, the only other thing we had was uh, another podcast appearance by Trent Reznor. Mm-hmm. 
on the Rick Rubin podcast. I'm only going to, it has a really stupid name if you're looking for the podcast. Just type in Rick Rubin, Trent Reznor if you haven't heard it. But the pod, his podcast is called like Tetragrammaton, I think. It's a really, I found it to be a very interesting, illuminating interview. Some things I don't think any of us ever knew or thought about might have been revealed in there. But you should just go listen to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. They talk a little bit about with teeth and some of the topics I'll be talking about here. Right. Then I also listened to the Jimmy Iovine interview on that same podcast. They talk about Nine Inch Nails a little bit on that one, too. Uh, and also, it was just really, that one's also a fascinating one. I recommend it. Did he talk about, like, Dr. Dre? A little. Spent more time on, like, Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty, to be honest. <laughs> well, that was, like, his production work. So, yeah, of yeah. course. Okay, but that's all that happened in the months since we've well, been gone. Well, I mean, there's probably been a lot more, but I'm not going to list it all. Turtles and Rick Rubin. <laughs> But we should not postpone what we're here to talk about any longer. Yeah. On to the next era. Yep, it's time. This next era has teeth. <laughs> it truly does. So before we start, probably some content warnings. Just talking about things like addiction and suicide, that kind of stuff. So, you know, if those... Topics are triggering to you. Just, I just want you to know that they're in here and they will be discussed. <laughs> um, so take care yeah. of yourself. But also, there are going to be things that I really wanted to include in this, but I just couldn't because I did not have the time. And it would have been like a three-hour episode and Blake would have probably murdered me. Yeah, I'll lose my mind. <laughs> so um, we'll come back to artwork and more info about themes. And Bleed Through will probably be a bonus episode. And that kind of thing. So we'll come back to a lot of things that I'm not going to touch on here. Right. It'll all be covered. But as Blake mentioned at the beginning of this episode, there was another long gap between releases. About six years? Yeah, I, I underestimated. It was more like six, wasn't mm -hmm. it? So even longer than the long gaps we were used to. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, thought, we thought, you know. Between yeah. Downward Spiral and Fragile was long. This well, was even longer. Yeah. Well, some of it is, you know, touring for mm. the Fragile. About, was it about a year-long tour? Maybe it wasn't even a year. It was a while. It definitely wasn't as long as the Downward Spiral tours. No. no. That was more than a year. So there was touring. And during touring, that was probably... It's where my troubles began, as they say. <laughs> Thank you. Is that, what, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> kind of. I was trying to think of how to segue into this, but that's definitely where the addiction, where alcoholism became, mm -hmm. is the word prevalent? More prevalent? Became, is that what I'm thinking of? Uh, it's where it, sure. The, maybe the touring cycle brought out the substance use a bit more. In Reznor. It did. And actually, I want to talk about the origin of it a little bit. Okay. Um, we know that he was using a little bit during Downward Spiral, and it progressively got worse. And I want to read a little bit from the LA Times. This was an article in April of 2005. So we're on the verge of With Teeth being released and Reznor's doing all his promotional stuff. And during this time, he's very open 
in a way he probably hasn't been before Yeah. about his addiction. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. This is after he finished The Fragile. At the time, however, Reznor was so happy to have finished the album that he did a stupid thing. He took a drink, his first since rehab. The next day he had two more, and it only got worse when he started touring again. The old insecurities were back. For a year, every day off, I'd spend the day sweating in a hotel room, feeling terrible about myself. I felt I would be ruined financially if I stopped the tour and afraid I would kill myself if I continued. Damn. So I knew he went, had a brief stint in rehab before recording The Fragile. Does this mean that he was sober while recording The Fragile? I mean, it sounds like it. I don't know. I won't speculate too much. We'll probably just go on what we have. Mm -hmm. Probably better to do that than to do speculation because, you know. Yeah. It's such a private thing. Yeah. He told Spin, that whole tour, I was in a constant state of withdrawal and sickness. The success of that record was the first week. Then the label had enough and the public seemed to have had enough and I'd had enough. It led me down a very dark and terrible path. At the end of it, which was close to four years ago, it was very clear to me that I was trying to kill myself. And that was the path I chose. I was going to just drink myself or drug myself out of it. I got back to New Orleans after the Fragile Tour, and I'd pretty much lost my soul. I just felt like nothing. Being famous doesn't matter. I don't like myself. I think I'm a piece of shit. It was unquestionably the worst thing ever, just lying all the time about everything. I was in terrible physical shape, too. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> this was the, uh, the beginning of getting gains. Mm-hmm. And at this time, he also thought that his career was basically over. Um, He told the LA Times, I hated making music. From a commercial standpoint, The Fragile was a failure. The record company seemed to abandon us. My manager and I weren't getting along. I didn't feel like I could write anymore, and I couldn't even stop drinking. Yeah, that would be quite the fucking bummer when what is maybe the best work of your career, the thing you worked hardest on, just kind of flops um, commercially. Mm Mm-hmm. Although it did go platinum. I mean, we're not talking about it only sold like 200,000 copies or something. It took a little long. It didn't go platinum right away. So it was after the death of his friend Rodney Robertson, though, that he checked himself into rehab. The rehab was called River Oaks, and it's in New Orleans. And he described it to the Los Angeles Times as, Imagine being put in a locked room where you feel you've got the worst flu you can imagine, and your skin feels like it's on fire, and you have to vomit constantly. Fucked up. Yeah. But, you know, he came out of it. (laughs) And I don't believe he's had a drink since. Um, Yeah, that's a long-ass time ago. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think, you know, uh, he said it before, like, when you're an addict, you just can't do it again. You could fall back down that hole way too easily. Yeah. For some reason, I was thinking of Trainspotting, the scene where uh, Ewan McGregor is in withdrawal, you know, and he's Mm -hmm. in a lot of pain. Is that where he sees a baby on the ceiling? Mm Mm-hmm. The dead Fucked baby. Up. Yeah. Does Trent talk about going to the gym in, in this interview or is that somewhere else? <laughs> he doesn't. But what was funny is I was watching a lot of clips and uh, from this era of interviews with him. And a bunch of interviewers made comments on his body, which I found interesting as a woman. Because mm-hmm. normally mm-hmm. people don't make comments on men's bodies. But it was right. they were they had no problem being like, oh, you're looking buff or oh, you gained weight <laughs> in the muscles. You bulked up. Yeah. So, I mean, it was pretty glaring. The change still it's a little ghost and <laughs> just kind of blurt that out. But <laughs> so in 
So uh, during this time, he also readied um, And All That Could Have Been and Still. So you still got some music. Right. Yeah. There were things. There were projects in that time. Exactly. And I feel like his work was a little bit more behind the scenes. For example, he worked with Zach De La Roca on the unreleased solo album. Mm-hmm. I believe that Reznor said like maybe there were 20 tracks recorded. There's some good insight on that. Trent looking back on it in that Rick Rubin podcast interview, by the uh, way. I have a clip of him talking, though, about Ooh. it. And this is during that time. So, well, okay. not like 2002 or three. I don't know exactly when he worked on it. But this is an interview for MTV, I believe. Okay. He also worked with, with Zach, who uh, we haven't seen forever from Rage. Um, yes. <laughs> how did that come about? And, and you know, what were the results uh, of that collaboration, I guess? Um, with Zach, I, I got a number of calls saying he wanted to work on some stuff, and um, I didn't know Zach at all. You know, I like Rage Against the Machine a lot, but I, I didn't know anything about him as a person or if he was, what, what his abilities were or anything. But um, we got together for a number of sessions in New Orleans, um, just working on some material that personally I thought turned out really excellent, you know. And... Over time, I think, frankly, it was just a matter of Zach not being sure what, what direction to go. You know? And I know the feeling of being kind of, you know, it's basically fear, in my opinion. You know? and you're not sure what you want to do, and it's the next big step. You know? And he's in the difficult position of leaving a, one of the best bands of the 90s, you know, when they were at their peak. And, um, you know, he wants to make an important statement when he makes it. And, and he will when he, when he does get around to making it. You know, and I, I like Zach. It was, you know, right off the bat, we hit it off on a friendship level. And he'll, he'll be out with something, and it will be good. Just not with me. <laughs> That's a bummer, though. Yeah. Well, we do, though, have... And he didn't end up <laughs> putting out that solo album, by the way. No. And we, there is actually a song that was released from, I'm guessing, these sessions. Yeah. And it was released on the Fahrenheit 9-11 soundtrack. Anybody remember that? No, no, literally no one does. <laughs> I, I saw that movie, and I don't even remember this song at all, but it's crazy that there's it's a song. It's probably one of those music from and inspired by kind well, of. okay, Yeah, sure. right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to play a little bit of it. It's called We Want It All, and it is really fucking good and i really wish this album yeah, would come out yeah they should have done made a whole thing of this yeah
wonder a lot of things to say about that. I wonder who's playing drums. Doesn't sound like sequenced mm. drums at all to me. Let Sounds me real. Check the Wikipedia page. I just had it pulled up. <laughs> There's not a lot of info on it. Uh, the only personnel it lists is uh, Zach De La Roca vocals, Steve Marcusen mastering, David Bianco mixing, Trent Reznor production. Probably Trent on guitars and bass, if I had to guess. But drums, I mm-hmm. hate that that's like lost lost to time now. <laughs> if Trent or Zach are listening, release the tapes. <laughs> we need those fucking tapes. Tell us who drummed. It's more like punk rock than than it is like Rage or even like Nine Inch Nails. I was expecting Trent to do like electronic beats behind him or mm-hmm. something and do his Trent thing, but it ended up being more like MC5 or something. I think that's because, well, we'll get into this when we talk about like his musical inspirations, um, like what he was spending a lot of time listening to while making this album. And a lot of it was post-punk. Um, yeah. So that might have a little bit to do with uh, maybe the sound of this. Although it's like a four minute long song. So it's not the length of like a, a punk track, but. Yeah, it kind of goes on, but that that's the Reznor influence. Yeah. You think he was listening to some At The Drive-In in this era? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> a little post-hardcore. <laughs> Just curious. But yeah, that, that was a pretty cool sound. Not Not what I was expecting. No, and I want to hear more. Very much not electronic and just kind of live rock band. Mm -hmm. It's good. Yeah, so, I mean, he was still doing some work, just not necessarily making his own albums. Mm -hmm. He could have been demoing. I don't know. I think I even read somewhere that there were some demos he doesn't even remember making. (laughs) Pull the David Bowie station to station there kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Or just stuff he deleted and doesn't want the world to ever hear. (laughs) Yeah. But during that time, I think... We touched briefly on this. He went to rehab, and like I said, he started really openly talking about it. And I pulled a ton of quotes from all these articles, but then I found this clip, and I think it's better than me reading mm. a ton of stuff to people. So, okay. so this is from um, something called The New Music. Is that a publication? I have, It's just what... The YouTube video is called Trent Reznor on the new music. It must be the name of the maybe it got cut program off. or maybe it got cut off and it was new musical express. <laughs> Why did you wait several years to start a record after the last one? Cause it's been a long time. And the reality of that was I was just um, at a point in my life where I was very ill and very off track and I needed to take some time and get my life in order. I've kind of, um, fallen into headfirst into addiction, alcoholism. And it was really, um, it wasn't anything that could be ignored any longer. It was a bit of a problem that crept up probably 10 years earlier and I'd been sweeping it under the rug and hiding it and trying to deny it and find my way and trying to outthink it and trying to beat it. And by the end of the last tour, I, I, had, I was beaten. I was thoroughly, thoroughly beaten. I mean, I have a job where it's almost encouraged to behave like an idiot, you know, and certainly the opportunity is there to do that. What kind of kept me, I think, in such a state of denial for so long was I didn't, I had no idea what my opponent was, you know? I didn't know anything about addiction, really, you know? An alcoholic was an old guy down the street with a cauliflower nose, you know, and that's not me. I got a job, you know? I'm still, you know, 
I had no idea of what was happening to me, and I'd always considered myself smart, and I always thought, I'm never going to be the guy that does that. It was either going to be die or get better, because it was, I was running out of last chances. And um, it was 2001 when that came up, and when I decided to correct the situation and really actively try to repair myself. If I could skip some of the chapters that got me here, some of the real bad ones, you know, and some of the ones where I wasn't maybe the nicest person to be around and I hurt a lot of people, I would do that. And this is who I am now. And I'm, I feel a thousand pounds lighter that I'm not carrying around a bunch of secrets and hiding and lying and living this terrible life I've been involved in. So I'm ready to go out and tour and I'm ready to um, make music good again. Make music good again, baby. <laughs> Great again. This is for a nice light little interview. <laughs> Oh, that's a good interview. Uh, I like it when we have something like that to do the work for us. Yeah, I know. I, I can totally skip over this whole page of quotes here. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, I hadn't heard that. Mm -hmm. Didn't know that was out there, but that is yeah. very candid. Yeah. And after he became sober, he said, uh, my life's exponentially better since then. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. Um, he also told Spin, I look at the years of insobriety as a chapter that served its purpose. It got me to where I am now. I like myself right now. I feel like I've reactivated myself. But I also don't know how I got to 39. I should be 26. And I'm like, same. <laughs> I should be 26 years on my way to hell still. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I want some of those years back too. And those pandemic years, give me those back. I don't count those. So really, I am 39. Yeah, I'm 36-ish. <laughs> we totally should start saying that. You just take always take, take two the, years take off. Two, years two off. or three. Okay. That sounds good. Maybe but, I should just take off a whole decade because my 20s, I was pretty lost. Yeah, so, my tw 20s were fucked. I'm really like 27. We weren't out there being musical successes mm -mm. and touring. Not hey. everyone can sell a million records in their <laughs> 20s. No, not everyone can. But it wasn't an easy time. It was a recession. Yeah. We were broke. We couldn't find jobs. Our pets' heads were falling off. It was what? awful. <laughs> Haven't you seen Dumb and Dumber? Yeah. Do you remember when... I remember that, but I don't know what it... Jeff Daniels goes... Is it Jeff Daniels who goes on a rant? Anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> I forgot that line. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So... But good, good to hear that he was doing better, obviously. Yeah. So he told Kerrang, um, when I got clean, I wanted to stop to take a minute to not feel like I'm always running for a train. I've never stopped working since 1988. The minute I realized I could get paid for doing this, for doing what I want to do, I've taken advantage of that as much as I possibly could. But I itched to get into the studio. I wanted to see if I could even make music straight. So once I felt like I was getting a grip back on my life, I started to ease myself back into it gently, checking over the stuff I'd been working on earlier. And I found that instead of feeling crippled, it was like I'd had 300 blankets removed from my head and that I could actually work much better. I felt empowered. Hmm. And so during this time, he kind of alluded to it up above, like, can I even work when I'm straight? Like, yeah, I think I that's a big record? fear of artists. Yeah. Like, 
substances have got me here. They've been my muse all this time. Can I even like make anything good while I'm not messed up? Yeah. And he said, I had to face the question to see if I had anything to say, you know, sober. And if I had the ability to even say anything, I moved out to Los Angeles and set up a room to work in. And the results turned out really well, I think. I regained my self-confidence. I regained my spirit, my passion for music, and I feel good about things right now. So that's why this record took a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, a life journey was in there. Yeah. And just more on the uh, creating while sober. I'm going to read a little bit here. Okay. Um, what he learned while working on this record. And he said, it was that I can create without relying on that thing alcohol. Hmm. And I don't need to be in a place of wanting to kill myself to write a song. And in fact, not being in that place allows me to think a lot more clearly about things than I could if I have to be in that place to write. And I was wary of creating in sobriety. I didn't know how that was going to work or if it could work, or if I was one of those tragic figures that has to rely on whatever to get to whatever state. And much like every other role that drugs or alcohol played in my life, I realized that was also more hindering than it was freeing. And a lot of that was a lie and a cheap way to get to something. It wasn't real anyway. I could function much better creatively as well in life in general. Sober. But yeah, that makes me think of um, some artists that I've really loved who have recorded some really great albums while completely screwed up. Well, Station to Station is an amazing album and David Bowie doesn't even remember recording it. Like, right. Classic. <laughs> and uh, he came back, you know, with Low which is another amazing album. I think he was sober-ish, though. I don't think he was like 100% mm. sober. Sobering up. Exactly. I loved Bright Eyes, and I know he struggled with some drug issues. Right. Um, I mean, there's tons. Yeah, just <laughs> countless. Ex I mean, it's the, the profession. It's a thing that is rampant. Yeah. Not the only profession, obviously. The guy down the street can also be an alcoholic. You don't have to be a famous musician. <laughs> he had some of those quotes I had that I didn't read. They were a lot of him saying, that's not me because yeah. I'm not. Uh, let me see if I have any good ones. I had told myself for a long time that an alcoholic was a guy down the street and that a cocaine addict was a guy with his nose falling off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what we're taught to think growing up. Yeah. And that you're an alcoholic is not like your best friend. It's some weirdo who it's, it's acts crazy. Some unhoused person on the street. You know what I mean? Yeah, or yeah. it's someone who can't function at all and is just. It's in reality, it may be someone who seems entirely put together some of the time or, or maybe when you see them. Can put themselves yeah, yeah. together L long, long enough. enough yeah. For, for to put on that mask for other people to see and then in private falls apart yeah until you can't anymore yeah until someone yeah uh, someone catches you falling apart and then it then it all goes to shit so i don't really want to talk about that anymore no we shouldn't <laughs> dwell on that nah. for too long. i mean we might come back to talking about it as a general theme of right. the album because it's going to come up and mm -hmm. yeah thematically in the album the lyrics yeah but i think it's just important to have context and during this time i can tell you that i was not aware of resner's issues he just disappeared and that to yeah. me was normal because that's what he did i wasn't thinking about this at all i was a six 
well, between the fragile and the with teeth, I was 16 to 22-ish year old who... You were in my sci-fi class. <laughs> okay. We, <laughs> um, Sorry, no, it was hard fantasy. What was it? It was some kind of... Oh, it was dystopian? No, nope. it was uh, radical fantasy. Radical fantasy. But during that time when I was taking radical fantasy class at, <laughs> at college, uh-huh. yeah, I didn't know. I wasn't really digging into what was going on personally with Trent Reznor, even though I had loved the music. I was a good little boy who never touched a drop of alcohol or drug. Well, okay, I, I had smoked plenty of weed by that point. You hadn't had any alcohol? Uh, only very small. I, I didn't learn to like it yet until I was like mm. mid twenties, literally. Oh, I learned to like it. And then I learned to like it way too much. Was stupid, but like the nasty, like Smirnoff ice type shit. Like yeah. that was what I started out drinking. Why and I did, was underage. But how it, come everyone starts with that? It's the nastiest it, shit. Well, it is now to made. me, but whenever you're first drinking alcohol, beer is gross yeah. and hard liquor is kind of gross unless you disguise it. Like I would buy like vanilla vodka and mix it with Dr. Pepper yeah. and just get trashed off of that. And it wasn't until I was probably like actually legally old enough to drink and I would go to bars with my friends yeah. and they were all older and they would get like you know, a Guinness or a Newcastle. And so that's when I started drinking more beer. Sorry, this is a dumb conversation, but. No, I think it's, I think people want to hear this. <laughs> I think people need to hear this. And so they're going to. <laughs> I didn't drink until my early to mid twenties. And, and it was I, not my fault. I didn't even, I barely knew you. No, you didn't do it. But I, then I fell too deep into it. And now I can barely handle one drink, uh, it's, I, I realize how awful it is for you. Anyway, who cares? I don't even know how we got I had tried, I'd, I'd tried weed mm. by, at that point. Oh. Just wasn't into drinking. Yeah. But during this time period, I just, I didn't think about it. Like, he's just always kind of been like a reclusive dude. I was used to the, the long breaks, you know? Yeah. So, by used to, I mean, he's done it twice before. I had transitioned from high school fanboy, mm-hmm. sad, depressed Blake mm-hmm. to college Blake by the time mm-hmm. With Teeth came out. College Jessica. I was a totally different person. I was in my first real relationship long term when With Teeth came out, as opposed to the abject loneliness of my early <laughs> fandom. I was not dating anyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was, that was by choice, though. <laughs> Single, uh, living the single life by choice, I assume. No, no one wanted me. I don't think that's correct. I think you were just being avoidant socially, maybe. Not socially, but avoidant romantically. Is that a thing? Sure. Sure it is. Probably. The thought of anyone touching me was terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I was not wanted either except by one person who was very bad for me. And that's the person I was with when <laughs> with teeth dropped. I was in a great place all around, failing out of college in a the most toxic relationship you could fucking imagine mm. and going through some shit. Just but different, like more adult shit more than the adult, teen shit. Right. Yeah. My, my first brush with adult shit. And I kind of, I've talked about this maybe briefly. I never really got 
into with teeth. It was the last album I bought of Nine Inch Nails for a very, very, very long time, which I'm mad at myself for. But anyway. Yeah, you missed out. Well, I did, okay? What else? I was into it right away. Can I say my, in 2005... Do you want to save it for a different episode, or do you really want to get into this now? <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to get. I'm not. I'm not going to get into it. I just yeah. want to say to to kind of prime people uh-huh. for my what my mindset was at the time. I was pretty gung ho. I was just very excited. New Nine Inch Nails. I was very on board. My thoughts evolved and changed over time. We'll get. There's plenty of time to get to that later. Mm-hmm. And I will say that my thoughts have changed as I've spent more time with this album, which Blake yeah. can tell you because I've messaged him about it. <laughs> I get, yeah, I have to get these text messages from my own wife who lives four feet from me at all times. <laughs> You're in here editing. I'm out there I'm researching. in the editing bay. She's in the other office That's right. 10 feet away. <laughs> other office. By that, he means the living yeah, room. <laughs> well, we can't, we're not all millionaires with big houses. Yeah, I can just tell you I was in my uh, indie rock era. I think that's all that needs to be said. I I also was, because mm-hmm. I mean, this was, this was post the strokes. We were all in our indie sleaze era. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, yeah, yes. But I had this kind of duality going on where the teenage dark electronic music Blake was trying to share space up in this noggin with the uh, indie rock Blake, who was going to Death Cab for Cutie shows and every other thing. Yeah. So I was I was trying to do both. But yeah. my my friends from high school and my teen years, I wasn't really in touch with. And I was completely, I was pretty much alone in my being excited for With Teeth. It was, that was kind of lonely. I remember buying it. And I, I think another reason why I just kind of didn't connect with this album was... I had no one to talk about it with. Like it was only my high school friends that I knew who liked I didn't either. Nine Inch Nails and I didn't have but, anyone. And so one of the joys of being a music lover is sharing it with other people. Yeah. And all my friends, we were all just listening to, you know, Arcade Fire and Bright Eyes and Modest Mouse and Wilco and blah blah blah. But no one really listened that I knew of to Nine Inch Nails. Well, that was true for me too, but I, here's where the difference might be. I was looking at the Nin Hotline and reading Meathead. Mm-hmm. And so seeing, hearing from other people online, uh, yeah. talking about the the with teeth, um, all the hype. Yeah. So I had that at least. I was never very online. My online right. time was printing out MapQuest directions to get to the bottleneck in Lawrence, now, Kansas, I, so I, I can go to a too. not a surf show. I was doing that big time. That's base. Oh, and shopping. Like, I got to go on Urban Outfitter, see if there's anything new. Even in 2005? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, okay. Shopping. Er, early adopter. Yeah. <laughs> of Urban Outfitters online. Uh, and research for school if I had to for classes. But that was it. I didn't hang out and... Any kind of chat rooms forums. or forums. I did forums or... sometimes. I lurked in echoing the sound, didn't post. Lurker. But what's interesting is I was also in my post-punk era. And you know who else was? Mm. Trent Reznor. Trent himself was in his post-punk era. That's right. So I want to talk about his uh, musical inspirations for this album. And then we'll go into some other general inspirations that we'll get into as we progress throughout this era Mm -hmm. but he was listening to a lot of gang of four 
The Stooges and Iggy Pop, Public Image Limited, mm. Brainy. Oh, wait, that's not post punk. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Pop Group and Wire. And he specifically name drops their album Sinned, which was in 2003. I listened to a couple of tracks of that today. And then there was an album called, well, it was by a group called named Brainiac, uh, Electroshock for President EP. I think that was more of like a. Uh... Yeah, that one I've listened to a few times. It's, I haven't quite gotten into it yet, but I want to. It's electronic and weird. You can kind of see where he was influenced a little bit, but he was apparently all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, He said in a BBC radio show in May of 2005 that this EP was really inspiring to me from a sonic standpoint. And he would use this EP as a sound reference while recording with teeth. Another group he mentioned was Pear Ubu. Periubu, I literally don't know. I've never Periubu. That's what I think. I think that's what I say in my own mind. <laughs> anyway, and so I want to read a little quote from him from Remix Magazine. This had a lot of stuff about like the sound and the gear and stuff like that. Some of it I just sent to you because I was like, I'm not reading this. This is yeah. Atticus talking about gear, it's and I'm good. not getting into. There's that. some good gear talk. <laughs> yeah, from this era. So uh, Reznor said, I wasn't doing anything consciously to react to what I thought sucked around me. And I didn't do this record to be the opposite of the fragile, although it kind of came out that way. Yeah, I'd agree with that in some sense. It just seemed fresh to me. It seemed inspiring. And the records I found myself listening to while doing this record, like Old Gang of Four Records, Stooges, Iggy Pop, felt fresh, felt dangerous, felt underproduced. It felt like the spirit of a human being conveying an emotional message was there in those things. And it wasn't caught up in the glitz and glamour of production bells and whistles, which I myself have embraced at times in the past. So I wanted to kind of strip it down, and I realized I felt comfortable not fitting a lot of layers of stuff in. I thought, let's only put in what was absolutely necessary. Let's take a stripped-down approach. Just like on Still. <laughs> and that's why With Teeth sounds exactly like Still. <laughs> exactly. I think the that uh, Zach De La Roca collab track sounds way more like the stooges and stuff than with teeth mm-hmm. personally yeah i hear the influence there yeah. with, with teeth well we'll we'll get to whether it yeah. does sound as unpolished as he's talking about here yeah and he also on uh nin access he said he was also listening to this is kind of interesting early bob dylan <laughs> <laughs> i can hear that influence all over oh yeah yeah um, right, right where it belongs. Here's another one. It's pretty much blowing in the wind. This is this is taking me back. The polyphonic spree. <laughs> <laughs> they they had them. They were having a moment. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That's about it. That uh, one moment. Yeah. Um, DFA produced acts. We'll get into that. The Fall, Sonic Youth, Wilco, mm. Brainiac. He name checks Brainiac I didn't here know too. The thing about Sonic Youth, I always I, I've liked them for a long time. Yeah, Liars, and of course Bowie. There was also a post on NIN.com and uh, kind of like a journal post. Today, we're working on some new tracks TR did at his place in L.A., listening to some old scientist and A. Sherwood stuff for tape delay inspiration. 
TR says to write, Mark Stewart is a genius. <laughs> Mark Stewart was the uh, leader of the pop group. Um, I still don't know who the pop group are. <laughs> it's okay. Somehow I'd never heard of them. What a strange name. <laughs> they don't sound very poppy at all. Mm, very well, strange name. I don't like yeah. I don't like that bait and switch. <laughs> so very quickly, some other inspirations that are not musical. Uh, Rick Rubin. You may think, what? Rick Rubin. <laughs> His work with the Beastie Boys. <laughs> I wrote Rick Rubin as Muse, LOL. I think he went to him for wisdom and stuff. He did. He said, Rick Rubin has been a mentor, a source of inspiration, and guiding force throughout the process. He literally says it there, a source of inspiration. Mm. Um, And I've got a little clip. You want to hear? Is this from the recent podcast or something older? Okay. It's older. These are all clips from this era. That's why I kind of went back and touched on the fragile briefly. And we'll do that again at the end of this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But the main reason I did that is because whenever I'm researching, I stick to my era. And when I get ahead, I found new information about the fragile, you know, Mm. that he's talking about in retrospect in 2005. And I'm like, oh, crap. He's always going to say different stuff looking back, too. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes history will uh, change in, in interesting ways. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so I just stick to the era. So th- these are all with Teeth era interviews. Okay. started this record off um, really pretty afraid to see if I could write. You know, I was afraid to kind of test that out in my new world and life I was living. And I started talking to Rick, and Rick's been a friend of mine for quite some time. And it was really a good... A good thing, a good person, a good amount of input to have around. And um, kind of as a mentor, when I came out to L.A. after that to um, start writing, I would check in with him and send him songs and start with feedback on that. And there came a point when um, a part of me just felt like every, my confidence had grown. My, I've never felt more strongly than I did at the time about what I was working on. And I felt like I need to just do this my way. My, I need to see it through the way I would see it through, for better or for worse. And it wasn't against me ideas Rick had. It was just every cell in my body that, of, of an artist said, just do this record the way you would do it. You know, Because I didn't feel short of ideas, and I felt like I had a plan, and I felt like um, I just want to do this. I don't, I don't need to approve it by anybody. I just really need to do this thing. And, I'm happy with how it turned out. I don't know how it would have turned out, you know, and I never will, but it was, um, I feel like it was what I needed to do at the time. So another inspiration, sobriety. Inspiring. Mm -hmm. And imperfection. He said, there were a few rules going into it, recording of the album, that I kind of had in place. And one was, I've grown tired of the sort of perfect sounding records that are easy to make these days. I think the great thing about technology becoming cheap and affordable and able to be obtained by anyone is that it's really put a lot of power in a lot of people's hands. The downside that can come from that is, now everybody can chop drums to be perfectly in time <laughs> and tune vocals to be right in. Dude, he had no idea what was coming, like <laughs> just how bad it would get. And there are all kinds of great sounding expensive reverb programs and everybody has got all this stuff. To my ears, if you turn on the radio, a lot sounds like it could be the same band. I can't tell the difference between a lot of it because it all sounds correct. So, imperfection. Yeah, there's some interesting irony to that statement when we get into the specifics of With Teeth. Yeah. How it was made. 
And one more inspiration, kind of a weird one. Uh, I'm going to say Ursula K. Le Guin and uh, her book, The Lathe of Heaven, which I'm currently reading. Mm-hmm. And then I had a note here that said, was the title inspired by the Melvin song? I don't know. <laughs> I think they said in like the NIN wiki that it's possible that he named it after or was inspired by a Melvin song that was called With Teeth. Mm. And he's a fan of the Melvins. And that's why. Maybe. I hope not. Since that guy turned out to be a dick. Melvin. <laughs> Melvin turned out to be a dick, I think. Is that? It's, we don't have to talk Hold about it. Who cares? No one cares. We talked about Melvin on the uh, the Tweaker bonus episode. If you want to hear us talk more about Melvin. Mr. Melvin. Hit up that bonus feed. We talked about Chris Vrenna's solo record. I want to go into the writing and recording of this album and how it was different from other albums. Because, actually, the record was recorded very quickly. Uh, Comparatively, yeah. Yes. It was probably one of the fastest albums he's ever recorded. From start to finish. At that point. Yes. At that point. Sorry. Uh, The actual record, formally I started writing it at the beginning of 2004, last year. Within five months, I had an album and a half, maybe two albums worth of stuff written. I recorded it last summer, mixed it last fall, done. So the actual writing and recording process is faster than normal for me at this point. Where'd the other album worth of stuff go? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe, Maybe. Another one lost to time. Maybe some of it ended up on year zero. We don't know. That could be. So first of all, as he mentioned, though, in that interview, he was in L.A. He decided to just change up the scenery a little bit, change of pace, moved out to L.A. New Orleans was depressing as hell. (laughs) Set up a little, basically his own little recording studio just to record some demos. Do you know where this was? Was this a home studio? I think he just had like, as far as I know, it was like a little here. I can tell you what gear he had with him. And this is from... In his home? Yeah, I think it was just in an apartment. Okay, gotcha. Where he was staying in L.A. He had a Pro Tools rig, a mic, and a couple of generic synths. <laughs> That's according to Remix. But yeah. I've also read other things that he had. But he basically was just recording these demos. Every bedroom pop producer. <laughs> so I'm going to read about the demo process. And I think this is all from Remix magazine. By generic synth, he means Profit 5, something (laughs) the mortal man cannot afford. (laughs) Okay, so these are all from Remix. This is about recording these demos. And Mm -hmm. he said, I realized that the last couple of records were written in the studio. So the writing and production and arrangement phase all kind of took place at the same time, bypassing having demos. Songs would start sometimes with a soundscape, sometimes a visual idea, sometimes a drum beat, sometimes a cool effect, sometimes a chord change. But usually the setting was created first, and then the song kind of got wedged in there later on. And this time around, I went about it pretty much the opposite way. I set up a kind of demo room out in Los Angeles and moved out here from New Orleans, really just for a change of pace. I wanted to set up a place where I didn't have too many options, and I wanted to do demos this time around. We need these demos. Why have we not heard any of these? (laughs) Well, you're going to find out. Uh, Well, not all of them, but... He burned them. (laughs) (laughs) He destroyed them along with the Antichrist Superstar Masters. We have a few of them from, uh, like, Downward Spiral era. They ended up on the deluxe edition. But he hasn't released many demo-type things. Other than pure pure feeling. (laughs) 
So instead of arranging and tinkering around with sounds, I just narrowed it down to starting with vocals and with lyrics and melody. And given the amount of time I had to do these, all self-imposed, I didn't have much time to flesh it out with stuff. We'll get into the self-imposed time in a second. Mm -hmm. And I found at the end of it, I had 25 songs that I thought were pretty good. That's a lot. Yeah. It was a totally different way of writing for me. The other thing is that a lot of these were written with the idea that a live drummer was going to play them. So I wanted to actually record drums this time. So And and not just people doing one shots in a garage (laughs) that are sequenced later. Yes. So the plan was to be a bit more objective and whittle it down to what I thought the best of the best was. And then we'd go back to New Orleans where I had my full studio and then kind of flesh these things out, arrange them, re-record them properly, so to speak, and put different layers of stuff in, add some depth, or so I thought. When we tried to properly record these things and go back in and do them right, we found that in four to five cases, the demo was better. There was spirit there. You know, I can think, I want to get this vocal done before I go out to get something to eat and just quickly sing it. And then I'd re-sing it 50 times and never be able to get the same spirit. I think that profoundly had an effect on the sound of the record. Is this the same interview where he talks about the TV being on in the background of him recording a vocal? No, I think that was a different thing. And okay. I don't want to talk about that yet. I don't want to talk about it when we get to that song. I know. I'm just, all I'm doing is teasing it. There's something very interesting with that later. Yeah. But Mulder told Remix Magazine, he said, they weren't really demos. <laughs> A lot of what was on the demo was actually the master. The demos were like a master work in progress. And we redid things that we thought needed doing, redoing certain sounds, changing structures, redoing vocals if necessary. We just took them up to a level where they seemed finished. I guess, yeah, does any, do do people even do demos anymore? I guess people do, but usually people just fuck around in Pro Tools and overlay and redo things until it is the finished product. Sorry, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Never mind. No, it does. I'm thinking. Why demo when you have a digital audio workstation? Weren't there some Halsey demos or something Uh, for uh, the most recent album? I thought yeah, there were like that. pre pre her hiring. Yes, Reznor. I don't know Ross. if they were just a different producer or if they were actually just considered demos. And I'm not totally sure what they'd be considered. That. Yeah. You know? So. In Remix, he talked about this self-imposed time. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to talk about Reznor's rules for recording with teeth. Reznor's rules. Listen up. Listen. I'm only going to say these once. One time. These are Reznor's rules. <laughs> I, need a, I need a sound drop here. Reznor's rules. So rule, write two songs every 10 days. Not every 10 months? No, not every 10 months. Crazy. 10 days. That's a, so weird. 10. Not a, not in a week, like normal people function. <laughs> I know most people be like, I got this. A week. A week. Yeah. <laughs> 10 yeah. days? Um, I guess so. Five days to work on one song and five days to work on the I, other. Sure. If, if, if you're no longer following a, a human calendar. <laughs> Uh, this time around, I came out to L.A. I set up a room with only really a piano and a drum machine. See how it's different? Piano and a drum machine. Uh-huh. Kind of a four-trackish type setup. And I set a deadline of, say, every 10 days, I'm going to write two songs with finished vocals and lyrics. And it forced me not to get too finicky with the arrangement and the sound design, which I could go off forever tweaking sounds. 
I enjoy doing that. But writing words and melodies, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. It is hard. I agree. Yeah. So this every 10-day deadline did not allow Reznor time to go off on a tangent. And it let him just focus on the core of the song and then go back later and flesh things out. And he said, and I think working that way made the record turn out more song-based. I don't think that's better or worse. It's just a different way of working that seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah, it is so song-based compared to The Fragile, mm-hmm. which is just sprawling soundscapes. So this approach also helped him to conquer fear and grow confidence. And uh, I wrote, and was hopefully cathartic. He just said, I didn't know if I could write, if I could think. I didn't know if I destroyed my brain. Also, I didn't know if I had anything to say. Suddenly, all this stuff starts flying out of me. Ideas which have been stuck in a clogged pipe. I've got a new set of tools, and I've got a new brain. And every 10 days, I can do two songs. Finished. Regardless of what was going to happen commercially, you know, will people like the record? Will anyone remember me? Being back on track was the main thing. Cool. Rule number two. Don't be a studio dictator. (laughs) Hmm. Bet this one was hard for him. Yeah. He said, and as I was working, I liked a lot of what was coming out, so I just let it roll, and I didn't spend as much time really agonizing as much as I remember doing in the past. So at the end, I wound up with a lot of stuff I did like, and I knew that I could be editorial later and decide what was good or bad. But right at the beginning, I wasn't quite as much of a dictator as I have been in the past. And I think a lot of me doing that in the past was just because I was afraid of a lot of things. I was afraid of my lack of talent. I was afraid of maybe this isn't any good. I was just afraid. Fear really governed a lot of what my work was up to this point. The process this time felt very different. I mean, yeah, look at the result. The product sounds very different. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another rule, no perfect sounding record, take a stripped down approach. We kind of talked about that when he talked about the music he found inspiring. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that he followed that rule completely. Yeah. Here, listen. Sometimes when you make these rules, you th- you end up throwing some out. Yes. These are really just he made these and I just kind of I just kind of uh cut and paste and put these rules together. It's not like there's an official list somewhere. Dims, but he would talk about Dims de Resna's <laughs> rules. But he would talk about like one rule I made for myself and another rule I made for myself. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was just to get started writing because if you yeah. don't have anything and you don't know where to begin and limitations can mm-hmm. be very freeing. Yep. yep. This paradoxical effect. I've been trying to do it lately. I'm also in a thing with my own music where I, I will, I can spend, I don't know, a month tweaking a stupid little sound. And I've try, I'm trying to be like, no, just, just put something out. Stop being a coward. I think that's pretty much what he's describing. Yeah. So, Regarding the stripped down approach, I have found myself reacting against music made on computers. This is interesting. (laughs) And I've noticed that as technology and great programs have become more readily available to people, it's easier to make perfect polished music. I've seen a lot of programmers who assume they're producers just because they can make things sound professional. They can cut some engineering corners and it's really easy with some plugins to make things sound polished and great and perfect and I think ultimately boring. The yeah. spirit of music that inspires me or excites me is something that still has some sort of feeling behind it or emotion or rawness or danger. And I think a lot of the time now, when everything is composed purely in a Pro Tools or sequenced environment, it's so easy to perfect everything. So that's the way you're supposed to do it, which just seems flat to me. I mean, 
yeah, it's interesting. This ends up sounding like a pretty Pro Toolsy album to me, <laughs> but then there are also some chaotic elements in there, as mm -hmm. always. Plenty of guitar that sounds dirty. Mm -hmm. So it's a mixture of, of polish and grimier stuff, but we'll we'll get to that. Uh, another rule, this one I found in the Ninterns notes. Thank you. Um, Thanks, Nintern. Yeah. I believe this was in the uh, NIN Access. Mm. Uh, Reznor said, one of the rules of this record has been to orchestrate only using monophonic voices, mm. no chords anywhere. Right. I remember this when the album came out or leading up to it. I remember this being publicized somewhere, probably the NIN Hotline. We're going to have no chords just uh, single note drones and so forth <laughs> was not entirely followed. I mean, listen to the big, big ass piano chords in the opening track. Mm -hmm. As far as the synthesizers use, lots of monophonic synth all over the record. Guitar wise, a lot of single note stuff with lots of overdub. I'm not a guitar guy, so. I'm sure chords are in there somewhere. Power chords. Um, hard to say. He he broke that rule in some places, obviously. Yeah. Also, this is not necessarily a rule, but it's something that he mentions often when he's promoting albums. Every album is honesty, and he still talks about that, I feel. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to play a couple of different clips. This one is from an MTV interview that I've been getting a lot of these clips from. It's a good interview. Okay. You ever sort of think about... Uh, you know, the anger in your music and your age and how they sort of relate. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I've thought a lot about, you know, I feel like I've kind of come out of a coma and it's like I'm trying to figure out, wow, how did I get to be this age, you know, because I've skipped a few years somehow. And, um, you know, when I've sat down to write, I've always tried to have the main criteria just be to be honest with myself about how I feel about whatever it is that I happen to be writing about. And, and try to be as brutally honest and not cater to anything other than what excites me as an artist and as a person. And, you know, as long as it feels valid to me and feels sincere, um, I'll do what I do under the moniker Nine Inch Nails, if it's appropriate. You know, but I see that having a finite lifetime. I would hate to think I would ever be in a position where I'm faking it to get a paycheck, you know. This is from a Musique Plus interview. That's right, Musique. Mm. Mm -hmm. Sounds French. Mm -hmm. I'm Rebecca. How are you? I'm from Montreal. Nice to meet you. Hi. I think you said at some point while you were making this record that it, it was turning out to be the, you know, more honest than anything you've ever done. Well, what does that say about everything else you've ever done? With the clarity I have now, I can look back at what I did, say, on The Fragile. I think about how when I was writing that album and Downward Spiral, a lot of times I was so kind of uncomfortable or unsure of myself that I would edit things out or I would very often say, oh, I can't do that. You know, and if I'd ask myself why I can't do that, it would be because, well, that's not right for Nine Inch Nails or that's, maybe that's too vulnerable or maybe that's showing too much or people might laugh at me if I did that or that doesn't fit. This time around, I felt kind of empowered by and surprisingly free and I don't care if this is too vulnerable or I don't care if you might laugh at this or I don't care if this doesn't fit what somebody on the internet thinks Nine Inch Nails should sound like. Tough shit. <laughs> <laughs> Tough shit. Yeah, that's the attitude. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> when, <laughs> when everything drops. So, Tough shit. <laughs> uh, With Teeth was also probably the easiest album that Reznor has said that he's ever recorded, at least up to this point. Mm-hmm. He said, when I think of every record I've done, there is usually at least one song per album that fights you from the beginning to the end. Like on the last album, it was We're In This Together. <laughs> we literally mixed that track for two and a half weeks. I was ready to kill myself by the end of that. And usually the problem is, when you're looking at something that doesn't work, it's always the part that you think is the best part that's throwing it off. The part you'd never consider getting rid of. On the downward spiral, Ruiner was that track. We kept going back to it. We thought it had merit, but it was just really tough to get the right approach, production and mix-wise. On this album, nothing really became a big issue. There weren't any battles that I can think of. And hmm. he told Metal Edge, when I started it, it just kind of fell out of my head immediately. It was a pleasant experience. It's like when you have your third child. It's not as hard to <laughs> to give birth. Or I guess in this case, fourth. They just fall out. Fourth child. Yeah, the fourth child just fell out. All happy and pain-free. <laughs> so as I was researching for this episode, he did a lot of comparing to the state of mind while he was recording this and the state of mind while he was recording The Fragile. And I thought it would be pretty interesting to bring up and just kind of compare the two because this is, you know, a now sober Trent looking back at a totally different person. It's kind of like Jessica of 2005 looking back Mm. at Jessica of 1999. Oh, yeah. And saying, wow, she uh, was cringe. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Super cringe. But anyway... He told Spin, The Fragile was an album based a lot in fear because I was afraid as fuck about what was happening to me. That's why there aren't a lot of lyrics on that record. I couldn't fucking think. An unimaginable amount of effort went into that record in a very unfocused way. <laughs> yeah, a lot of instrumentals. Mm-hmm. With teeth, zero instrumentals. Zero instrumentals. Notably. Weird. That in a Pretty Hate Machine, right? The only two yeah, with I guess no you're instrumentals. Right. Probably why people compared a lot to Pretty Hate Machine. It yeah, had a demo phase, just like Pretty Hate Machine. Still it, a weird comparison. No instrumentals. And uh, as Trent says, each song kind of stands on its own. It doesn't need supporting songs around it right. to make sense. There's, neither of them really have a main concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told Metal Edge, I messed around in the studio on a number of different things. And when I started on this record, I had my confidence back as a person and I was in a much clearer headspace. I opened a notebook to see what was in there, in my head, and a lot of stuff was bottled up that I couldn't get out before. I know that's why I worked on the record this way. The Fragile, I was on a slippery slope of lying to myself about what condition I was really in. I couldn't think very clearly. What I could do in the studio was improvise, creating these insane soundscape-type things that kind of turn into songs, turn on each other, go off on tangents. That's why The Fragile sounded the way that it did. But in hindsight, I can see that I was working the only way that I could at the time. I was trying to overcompensate for what I think I knew inside, that I was fucking up. I do think that this record does sound different. I think that it's much more song-based. Again, the reason I go into that story is, it's not all that The Fragile didn't sell so great, so I'm going to make a song record. That didn't cross my mind. The Fragile came out the way it did because it was the only record I could make then. This record, the idea of putting as much time and madness into it, I didn't imagine doing it that way this time. Hmm. And then he told the Los Angeles Times, and this made me sad. (laughs) He said, when he was looking back on The Fragile, he said, I listened to it the other day for the first time in a long time. 
and I was amazed how frightened I sounded. Damn. Yeah. I guess you can, you can kind of hear that. I think it helps the concept, really, though. It fits. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff I had in here that I wanted to get into, but I'm not going to right now. I mm-hmm. figure some of them we'd want more info on, and it would just extend it way too long. So I just kind of want to get a little bit of context out there, how the album was recorded, how it was different from previous processes, where it was done, which I think is important, and just uh, the state that Trent was in, which is a good state while he was recording this album. Totally different. So that's mainly why I wanted to do this episode. And I also learned a lot of things. Like I said, I wasn't very online. I don't think it was very well known even online. You know, maybe rumors or something people talked about, but what was going on with Reznor. And so learning these things and having that kind of context and knowing what he was listening to as well and comparing the album to those things um, has made it a little bit more interesting for me to have that. So I wanted to share with other people my experience. (laughs) And maybe it'll make you listen to this album a little bit differently. I don't know. But I know a lot of people love this album, but I know for a lot of people who are maybe fans for a long time, this is not necessarily their favorite album. Right. So, and we've noticed a lot of people, young, fans younger than us, if you believe in first album theory, it was the first album for a lot of younger fans mm-hmm. and remains many of their favorite album. Mm-hmm. And yes, we'll talk about all the people who assisted on this album in future episodes. We're not going to leave out Dave Grohl. We'll get to him. We'll get to Dave Grohl. Calm down. Listen, we're going to talk about James Brown, but not that James Brown, as Reznor says. James Brown. (laughs) James James Brown. Brown. Real heads will get that one. Real heads. Get it. (laughs) I didn't even realize what a clever little wordplay I did there. And um, a little dude named Atticus crops up on this record, too, so... Atticus is born, the birth of Atticus Ross. Mm-hmm. He materialized just for this record in 2005 as a full British adult. It's true. It's weird. He said, hello, hello. I'm here to program your synths. <laughs> great. That was a great accent by me. That was great. Can you do your Michael Caine, please? <laughs> no. <laughs> I tried to earlier when I said, Dims to Resna's rules. Oh, like there's like, the cider like house the, rules. Yeah, like a uh, alternate universe cider house rules. Yeah, I didn't Terrible. catch it though. Sorry, awful. It wasn't as good as your normal attempt at Kane. Anyway. Yeah. So anyway, um, there are more things that I didn't get into. Like I said, that we will get into later. Mm-hmm. So don't fret if we didn't talk about something. If there's something you want us to talk about, you can hit us up. But we're probably already planning on talking about it. Maybe, I don't know. But if, yeah, maybe there's something we overlooked in our research. So by R, it's really Jessica doing the research here. I can't, I'm not going to pretend that. With help. I have help. Luckily. Right. uh, Nintern too. Nintern's more of a gearhead. And so that's more for you. He and I are big (laughs) gearheads. We love the the gear. Yeah. So he he does the the stuff I don't want to read about. I, I like reading that stuff. <laughs> I want I like reading about Melodyne. And What's Melodyne? 
We'll save that for later. That'll be a contentious topic, I imagine. Maybe not. Not not really a big deal. Cool. Well, that's all I got for now. Okay. All right. We'll see you for year zero, uh, whatever the next one is. (laughs) That's with teeth, baby. No, the next one will be Halo 18, right? Yes. The feed... Hang on. The Hand That Feeds. Smash hit a radio single. Huge hit. Huge. That topped the charts and wouldn't stop playing on my local alternative rock station for several months. I remember the video on MTV quite a bit. I wasn't watching MTV. It's it's funny. It's such a lo-fi video that it's so not made for MTV. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Hand That Feeds. Will be our next Halo. Yeah. Maybe we'll even talk about the MTV VMA performance that could have been, but was not. Ooh. And all that could have been? No, we already did that. What kind of bonus material can we expect in between now and then? Well, we're going to do a patron pick, I believe. We've been doing patron picks in the bonus Mm -hmm. feed. Um, But this one, I feel it fits into this era nicely, um, even though it's about an album that was recorded prior to this era. <laughs> yeah. But we're going to be discussing uh, 12 rounds. So Atticus Band. Mm-hmm. With his wife, right? Mm-hmm. On Nothing Records. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be a good way for us to start talking a little bit about Atticus, who I guess was not a fully formed a man who just fully <laughs> yeah, formed Yeah, I guess my theory breaks down because he was already in bands and yeah. stuff in the 90s. So, but yeah, uh, that and other patron picks on the bonus feed. Mm-hmm. We've been doing some really interesting stuff. To wrap up, if you go to nailedpod.com, all of our stuff is there. And at that website, you can also click on the Patreon link where you can get access to Nailed Even Deeper. That's our bonus feed. We go beyond the halos there. More content. So much content. Discord Access to our exclusive Discord, which is very active and fun. Um, Got a oh, little family in there. Yeah. We have new members of the family, by the way, that I... It's been a long time since we got to shout out new patrons. Yeah, let's do it. Shout out. So... Shout out to new patrons who subscribed. Thank you for joining. Uh, Matt, Dominique, Emily, Mark, Daisy, and Sunny. And if you joined sometime in the hiatus and I didn't mention you and you want a shout out, you can hit me up. This is all the Patreon app is showing me right now so i may have missed someone yeah don't be afraid to yell at us you can always bother us we're not that busy okay well sometimes we are oh and uh patrons also get discounts on all the stuff in our merch store and we give away we have a monthly merch giveaway for subscribers as well so you excited about this new era actually i Kind of am, because like I said, I don't know much about it. Okay. Uh, right. So I am kind of excited. I. It's been a lot easier to research than the Fragile era. Definitely, for oh, sure. Oh, really? You seem very hard at work in there, but... Well, 
There's maybe there's more more well documented maybe. Maybe it's just that it's I'm not as familiar with what was happening. Mm. So to me that's more interesting and intriguing. Whereas the fragile was really kind of depressing. <laughs> For my part, I like that I can dig through a lot of multi-track stems and stuff for these songs. Yeah, you have multi-tracks. You don't have to use yeah, AI anymore. Right. The, the, the fragile stuff, a lot of it sounded like shit um, when I pulled it apart with the AI. And also, the so this has a surround sound mix and digging into the 5.1 files. I could find some really cool, high-quality stuff. We listened to it together a couple nights ago to get in the with... Yeah, era we, mood, and there were sometimes when Trent Reznor's just whispering right in yeah, my ear. The surround stuff, the surround <laughs> mix for this is crazy. Yeah, it's um, really weird. The headline is loudest tambourine you'll ever <laughs> hear in your life in like behind your head. <laughs> but it also it is fun when he kind of whispers in your ear from the surround speakers. Yeah. Okay. And Dave Grohl, be on the lookout for him. He's a big part of this fucking record. Yeah. Okay, uh, thanks everybody for staying with us, for uh, being uh, patient as yeah. we got our research together and started trying to make sense of everything. And always, these episodes always freak me out, but I feel like they're necessary it's in good. a way. It's good. It's been good. It's but, good to be back. Thanks for not leaving us during the hiatus. Yeah, sorry, I feel a little bit rusty. Yeah, we are rusty, but we're brushing off the cobwebs here. <laughs> okay, thanks everybody. See you next time. And didn't that make you feel better?